Hey, what's up? My name's Alex and this is my podcast, Alex Listens. Here is the place where you'll hear or watch me uh, ramble and stumble through various topics, including um, philosophy and politics and identity and identity politics and race and psychology and economics sometimes. So, yeah. Um, and what gives me credentials to talk about this kind of stuff? Well, uh, I don't know, but I guess I've been at university for a long time. I haven't completed any of my degrees. I'm onto my fourth. Yeah, onto my th- no, onto my third. Um, I've studied at four different universities in two different countries. Um, so yeah, those are my credentials. Uh, I'm 23. I'm single. <laughs> We're all single um, in this current coronavirus situation. But um, yeah. Uh, hi. Nice to meet you. Um, if you don't know me and you want to learn more about me, visit my website and there's an about section and you can read some stuff about me, like about um, my migrant parents and about my ethnicity and about my uh, upbringing and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah. Uh, I have many other episodes. I think this is the 35th, which is pretty wild. Um, And you can find links to all of them on my website, www.alex.co. I'll put a link down below uh, in the YouTube uh, description box. Um, If you're listening to this, consider watching it because you'll be able to see my face. Uh, And I think it's important to see the faces of the people who um, you listen to and who you are interested in and by, um, hopefully that's how you feel about me, but I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, one last thing, the last thing I need to say is that I will never, ever, ever have ads on this podcast, um, for ethical, ideological, social, uh, reasons. Um, I refuse to support that industry. So I rely on your support. Um, the two platforms that I've chosen are Patreon and PayPal. Um, and so if you're in a position to, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, and you're in a position to contribute to it, and it's something that's meaningful for you, please consider doing so. Um, as I said, you can do so via Patreon. Uh, there'll be a link, um, on my Instagram page, on my website and in the bio, whether you're listening to this or watching it on YouTube and any support whether it's two dollars or, uh, you know, if you're feeling generous, um, if you, uh, you know, your entire inheritance, um, it will be greatly appreciated. So please consider supporting it. Um, cool. Okay. Well, now I suppose we should move on to what I'm actually going to talk today. Talk about today. Um, and so this is going to be a two-part kind of analysis. Uh, this is the first part. So. Yeah, I suppose this is where you should start. Um, What I'm going to talk about is uh, an essay by Bertrand Russell. Um, He's a philosopher. Uh, If you want to learn more about him, go on Wikipedia or something. Um, He wrote in the 20th century and he is uh, at least... So this book is called In Praise of Idleness. And the essay that I read, which is the first essay in this book, it's not very long. It's like 20 pages, 25 pages. Um, it's also called in praise of idleness. Uh, and I thought the reason why I wanted to talk about this essay was because 
I believe that now many of us, especially those of us who have the privilege of being able to sit down and listen to a podcast or sit down and watch something on YouTube, we have the privilege of time and space. Um, And this essay is precisely about time and space and uh, what having access to that privilege means for us philosophically, psychologically, and ethically. Um, Yeah, and uh, I wanted to think about being idle during this time. Um, And that's why I read this. And that's why I'm doing an episode on this, because I think it's something all of us need to reflect on. Um, The majority of my listeners are people who come from positions of privilege. Um, I was raised in one of and currently live in one of the most privileged cities in the world, Melbourne. I have access to many of the most privileged institutions, um, universities, healthcare systems, uh, economic systems, social welfare, that kind of stuff. Um, And idleness is a privilege and being able to be idle is a real privilege. Um, And that's what the second part of this, of this kind of, uh, these, yeah. So the first part, I'm going to analyze this essay. The second part, I'm going to, um, talk about the kind of mm, the shortcomings and expectations and social changes needed for us to think about idleness as something that either should or shouldn't be afforded to everyone. Um, because as you'll see from this essay, uh, And from my analysis of it, Bertrand Russell is amazingly insightful and he saw his vision into the way that society... So this essay was written in 1935 um, and he foresaw things nearly a century in advance. Um, And I mean, perhaps it was obvious that society was going to be as consumer and... uh, as consumer heavy perhaps it was obvious in the 30s um but i don't know because i'm not from the 30s i'm from i'm a millennial baby um yeah well no i was born in 96 but whatever um okay so this book i thought i'd begin with a quote because this It's not the most important quote, but it's a nice place to begin. Oh, also, I'm going to outline the structure before I read this quote. Um, Okay, so there are six things I'm going to talk about, which is a lot. Uh, The first thing, which is kind of the central claim of Bertrand Russell, is that um, machines and industrialization and automation have... All of those things have reduced the need for people to work in manual labor jobs. As in, things can be done by machines faster, more cost effectively, with less risk. And yeah, in a way that can't be done by us. Um, And this has a relationship to passivity and being idle. So that's the first thing I'm going to speak about. The second thing, which is perhaps a definitional thing, is just to investigate two different types of work. So this is kind of sounds pretty Marxist, but there are 
there's a one framework for thinking about work and that is, or there is one framework of thinking about society and that is through the lens of labor. And capitalism views its subjects, it views their worth through the outcome of what they produce. So some people will produce things that are meaningful and attract attention and attract money. And so that kind of stuff is valued. And then things which aren't, which, you know, people may have spent as much time producing them and as much effort, but, you know, they're not as valuable, they're not as relevant, and so they're not valued as much. That's one type of labor. The second type, so that is kind of a productive labor. The second type of labor is telling people what kind of stuff is worth producing. Um, And that's very interesting because in a neoliberal world where we have so many different job categories, we can see how there is kind of this stratification of um, roles, managers, sub-managers, sub-committees, all that stuff. The third thing is um, the the way in which excessive consumption is uh, is unethical, 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 um, and this is kind of. Some uh, philosopher who I speak about very much, uh, his name is Peter Singer. Some people love him. Some people hate him. I love him and hate him. Um, He is controversial in some aspects, extremely influential and helpful in others. Um, I'm going to do an episode shortly on his controversial side because that is something that I have neglected. Um, Not intentionally. Uh, The fourth thing I'm going to talk about is slavery. Um, and slavery is going to have a particular definition, which is the kind of, uh, being a slave to the system. Um, and I'm going to reference Nietzsche, who is a, uh, 19th century German, uh, philosopher. Some people don't even like calling him a philosopher, but I think he's a philosopher. The fifth and six things are automation and then education. So this is going to be a really content heavy and theoretical heavy, theory heavy episode. So if you're watching, um, maybe like, this is a bit arrogant, but like maybe get a notebook because I feel like maybe take some notes because I feel like there is a lot in here. I've also taken so many notes, pages and pages on this essay. Um, and I feel like, you taking notes on my notes will be helpful. Um, if you don't want to read the essay, obviously I encourage you to read the essay. Just Google it. It's very famous. I'm sure you'll find a PDF. So those are the six things. Okay. I'm going to begin with, um, with a quote from the book. So this is in the context of Russell, uh, asking, a laborer, what the best part of his life is. Um, so if you ask the laborer what he thinks the best part, sorry, if you ask the laborer what he thinks the best part of his life is, he is not likely to say, quote, I enjoy manual labor because it makes me feel that I am fulfilling our noblest task. And because I like to think how much I can transform this planet. It is true that my body demands periods of rest which I have to fill in as best as I may, but I am never so happy as when the morning comes and I can return to the toil from which my contentment springs. 
That's on page 23, towards the end of the essay. Okay, so that quote, um, that quote encapsulates the crux of Russell's claim, which is that being a human, being a being which seeks meaning doesn't mean that we ought to seek meaning from manual labor. Um, and also the kind of subtext is that when you ask someone what they take, what they take to be the most meaningful part or what they enjoy the most in their life, um, it's very unlikely that they're going to tell you that it is uh, their job. I don't know anyone who likes their job, really. Um, and the people who do like their job have an incredible amount of freedom. Um, they are able to kind of set their own parameters. Uh, they are autonomous. Um, they are able to grow uh, in, ter in terms of their skill set. They're able to develop their skill set and they're able to contribute to society in a wider sense. Think about how many jobs allow you to do that today. It's not many. Um, so obviously there are some people who are able to kind of tick those three boxes, autonomy, self-development, contributing to society. But I guess in the context of this essay, labor work isn't, or Bertrand Russell doesn't believe that menial labor is, is like that, is something that can bring us those three things. And that's quite an arrogant claim and it's quite elitist. Um, obviously I, to some extent I disagree. Um, my grandparents were factory workers. Uh, I think both of them hated it. Um, but you know, they were producing things which were used by people and which contributed to like, they made shoes. Um, or my grandfather made shoes. Um, and one thing that I guess maybe, maybe once upon a time when people were, when people had great dominion over their work and they were able to personalize things and there was a, a market for it. Um, you know, hand tailored shoes, I guess the market for hand tailored shoes. Now, I don't know anyone that owns a pair of hand tailored shoes. Uh, I guess the things we buy now are made by machines in factories. Um, and, and then in sweatshops by, um, I imagine the kinds of people that Bertrand Russell is talking about in this essay, the menial laborers, the menial work laborers who are forced to do menial tasks under horrible conditions, because that is the thing that is productive of a, um, an income or a salary, which they need in order to survive. Um, one other thing that's very interesting just before, before I kind of get deeper into the analysis. One thing that's very interesting is that Russell has no citations in this essay. There is not one citation. Um, and this is, I enjoyed this so much more than like than most academic papers I've read, especially philosophy that's written, that's been written over the past, I don't know, 20 years. Um, philosophy today is boring and it's codified and it's rigid and it's got a million footnotes and that's what philosophical writing is like. Um, the most favorable comments I've received on essays that I've submitted to university 
for philosophy papers have been those there have been essays where i have done an incredible amount of research and there's been an outrageous number of citations um and that's quite sad uh and that's something that i will talk about in the sixth point so again i apologize for the length of this but there's so much that i want to talk about so this is going to be a very long episode okay so the first point Machines have reduced the need for us to work. And this has some bearing on our capacity to be passive and our capacity to be idle. Okay. So Russell says that as society becomes more industrialized, machines are able to produce the amount of things that we need. So let's say once upon a time, a factory full of workers had to work 10 hours to produce a certain number of safety pins. Machines come along, they produce that number of safety pins in one hour. So they are uh, nine times more efficient than the workers. I think nine, ten, nine. Um, so, uh, Then what happens to those workers, Russell asks. Um, And he says, well, they continue working 10 hours. They continue working in the factories and they produce nine times the amount of pins that are actually needed. And then there's this great surplus. And then people are encouraged to buy an excess of, of pins just in case they need them in the future. And then there's this weird cycle of excessive consumption. And... These people, these people in the factories are still having to work 10 hours in unfortunate conditions in order to produce an amazing excess of pins. Obviously, you know, we need to think about other things. Shoes, suitcases, books, posters, clocks, heaters, lights. Mirrors, vacuum cleaners, plants, um, pot plants, yoga mats. All of these things are produced in factories. I said plants, obviously. Maybe they're like genetically modified. I don't know. This one looks pretty, pretty good. Um, We have, there, there is, even, even in times like, even in the time of a pandemic, there isn't a shortage of many things. Really, the only things that there is a shortage of <laughs> is face masks, which is incredible. Um, but, you know, companies are repurposing their factories to produce face masks. And soon enough, I hope there is a surplus of face masks. Maybe that is something that we are justified in having a surplus of. I don't, I don't believe that we're justified in having a surplus of of like of lights we don't need we don't need 10 lights per person as in 10 lamps we don't need a surplus of those things maybe we need a small surplus you know in case they're breaking or something but not to the extent that there are now there is an overproduction of these things so russell says that the greatest injustice in this situation is that the people are, are still expected to work 10 hours when really they should only work one 
and perhaps should be paid 10 hours worth of work. But that is the weird thing about capitalism. Oops. So this is where we move. This is where we move on to the second dot point, which is the two types of work. The first type of work is not valued, is not valued highly. At least today, it's not valued highly. When, when in Russell's essay, if you read it, you'll get a sense that in the society that he is talking about, he he's, talks a lot about Russia. And he says that in Russia, the worker, the manual laborer has a, an esteemed reputation. And I do not believe that is the case in Australia. I think in Australia, manual work has a certain stigma attached to it, which I, I, I'm not for stigmatization. Um, I don't support that stigmatization. I don't believe that there should be as strict a hierarchy of respect that we direct towards certain jobs. Like why do, why did my parents, my grandparents want me to become a doctor? And then if I didn't want to do medicine, why, why did I have to become a lawyer? And if I didn't want to do that, why did I have to become an engineer? Why is there this hierarchy of value? Um, and according to Russell, it's because of this inbuilt power structure into the two different categories of labor. So the two different categories are the laborer, the manual laborer, and then, and then the director of the labor, the laborer. So the manual laborer does all of the physical work. They move things, they package things, they cut things, whatever. The director tells the laborer how to use their labor, but they don't do any of the labor. The director, according to Russell, is the person whose work obviously is more highly paid and whose job title is actually respected. So the manager, the director, the CEO, whatever, you know, this person at the top, and they kind of orchestrate the way in which the people below them direct their labor. And then one amazing thing, one amazing insight that Russell had was that he says that there is a lot of freedom in that second category, in the category of the director. There is a lot of freedom in terms of how that position can be modified and how it can be stratified, which means, you know, layered into various different categories. Um, and that's exactly what we've seen in a neoliberal economy, in a neoliberal workplace. Um, job, new job titles are being created. You know, if you go on LinkedIn and you click on a random person's profile, it's probably, I don't know, you probably have a 75% chance of discovering that they are the sub-editing chief director assistant uh, subcommittee lead leader, sub-leader, vice leader. And then, so what's happening is no one wants to be the person at the bottom. No one wants to be the manual laborer who's directed and who's, who's directed to do all of the menial tasks and who has to slave, in inverted commas, slave away. Um, and so in order for people to avoid that, in order for people to kind of be above the people below them and direct them, uh, those in positions of power create new roles and appoint people who they like or whatever into those roles. But Russell saw this insight. I'm not sure if, you know, uh, 90 years ago, there was as many, 
Actually, I, there just couldn't have been as many job titles as there are now. There are way too many job titles. Why does a company need 5,000 different positions? Think about HR, human resources. Really, if people were, if people were reasonable, you wouldn't need human resources. Or maybe you'd need one person, but not an entire team to teach, to have an organization you know, run respectfully, but obviously, you know, people in positions of power flaunt their power and they need to be, there needs to be a system of checks and balances. And so in some sense, HR team is important, but really like, yeah, like there should be, there should be greater equality in the workplace. And it's a shame that a category of workers with dominion over others has to be created in order to stop people from doing nasty things. It's just a strange way of coping with, um, with, yeah, with bad, with people who wield their power in a noxious way. Okay. So we have these two different categories, two different labor categories. Um, and, and now we need to return back to the actual, the actual claim that the essay is trying to make, which is that Idleness is something that all human beings need. And it's something that all human beings need to learn how to use wisely. Um, How many of you have a job or have some kind of commitment that is so draining that when you return home, you only want to do things passively, like watch Netflix or kind of scroll on your Instagram feed or, um, I don't know, do things that don't require active psychological cognitive engagement or physical engagement. Um, many of you, including me. Um, although I, I, I don't know, I guess at the moment I'm out of work. So apart from this podcast, but I don't consider this to be work, um, which is something that Russell would be very proud of. Thank you. Um, so, Yeah. uh, How many of you have jobs like that, that quash and silence and suffocate your ability to actively engage with your idle time? So in times where when you return from work, how outrageous is it that you are so sapped of your charisma and energy and motivation that all you can do is passive activity? So that is that is a huge problem. That is so frightening. And and Russell wants society to be configured in such a way that people have to work for, I think he says, four hours a day. And the rest of the time they have leisure time. And now just think about the word leisure. Maybe many of you winced inside when you heard the word leisure. Leisure has negative connotations attached to it. Laziness. Uh, slobbishness. Sluggishness. Uh, selfishness um, heaviness, all of these different things are attached to the word leisure. Um, and that Russell argues is one of the ways in which the people at the top have justified the people have told the people at the bottom that being idle is bad for your soul. Um, and I think I genuinely believe that that is something that I have been taught over the course of my entire life by pretty much everyone in a position above me. 
in a leadership position by teachers, by academics, by friends, um, by parents. I'm told that, you know, productivity is essential. I must be creating. I can't just sit there. I just, I keep returning to the time when I dropped out of my law degree and I was met with this widespread kind of social upset and furore at the fact that I was letting go of this thing that was going to inject me into the workplace and streamline my my path to the workplace. And people couldn't understand, what are you going to do with your time? How dare you? How dare you not be at university? How dare you not be using your time effectively and efficiently? Um, and yeah, I guess I, I, I'm fortunate to have the mother that I have. Um, if you want to learn about my mother, I did a podcast with her. You can listen to it. It's on my website. My mom is someone who cherishes idle time and is someone who has encouraged me to be idle and to be still and to be slow and to check in um, and to, you know, not in a narcissistic way, but just to kind of take a, take a step back from my involvement in things such that I can enjoy my own person and my own interests actively rather than passively. Um, my dad is quite different. He is very serious and driven and motivated and always wants to be working and being productive. So I have these kind of two, these two competing, these two polar forces um okay so uh i was talking about the the yeah so that this is actually the fourth heading which is slavery um so i might i might just signpost that and then i'll come back to it once i get to the fourth heading so um the next thing i wanted to talk about is uh the ethics of excessive consumption. Um, now, Russell says that this, he kind of puts forward this basic argument. If people don't, if people think that certain work is unethical, oh, sorry, if people don't want to do certain work, how dare they excessively consume in such a way that demands others to do that kind of work? And I totally agree with him. Um, how dare I want to buy a new pair of shoes when I already have a totally functional pair, when it's likely that the shoes that I'm buying were made by, um, someone who is suffering in awful conditions in a sweatshop somewhere. How dare I, or how dare any of us buy anything from Amazon? I actually don't buy from Amazon because, and I never have proudly. Um, because I, I'm aware of the conditions that, uh, Amazon workers are in where, um, uh, I believe it's, I believe it's, uh, an Amazon, uh, workplace where, uh, a, an investigative, an investigative journalist managed to, you know, kind of get a job there and saw that, workers were given such little break time that they were urinating into jars and leaving those jars in places. Um, people are taking their life at work. Um, there's another factory. So trigger warning. Um, this is, this is going to go down briefly down a dark path, but, uh, another factory, um, had a safety net around 
a physical safety net around its building to stop workers from throwing themselves off the building. Um, I've forgotten which company that was, but this is precisely the point that that Russell is making. Um, so there are two things. There's the point that he's making for, I think both of the points are aimed at the consumer because the consumer is the one who has the power, unfortunately. And the consumer is the one who can choose to boycott certain companies and support others. So you boycott the unethical companies and you support the ethical ones. You boycott the companies where the workers who work for that company have such poor conditions that they are suicidal and you support the companies who fairly pay their workers, give them, don't demand so much of them that the people have no time to indulge in activities of leisure and, and stillness. Um, yeah. And, and, and so the, the me as someone who is a consumer, um, and also a worker, I, I had a job. Um, I, I have the capacity to choose where I direct my money. And this is a very, uh, utilitarian argument. Um, I ought to do what maximizes pleasure and minimizes suffering for the greatest number. Um, so I ought to spend in such a way that I'm promoting the happiness of the greatest number. So no, I won't buy from Amazon. Um, no, I won't. Uh, yes, I will buy from a sustainably sourced, uh, ethically produced company. Obviously, um, there is a great privilege that is required to be able to make that decision. There is a reason why Amazon, why people buy from Amazon, and that's because it's cheaper, because it has a monopoly, um, because they can afford to beat the prices of of smaller businesses um, and put them out of business by doing so, because yeah, because they can, because they Jeff Bezos. The CEO of Amazon is the richest person in the world. Um, okay, so I think I've finished. So obviously, it look if any of you have, if any, of, if any of you believe that consumption is ethical, please get in contact with me. You can do so on Instagram, or you can send me an email: contact at alex.co. Um, and this is an especially interesting point to think about at the moment because many countries are receiving a stimulus package from their government at the moment. Um, And the intention of this stimulus package is that people are going to consume and that consumption is going to re-stimulate the economy and prevent a recession. Um, That's how, that's what trickle up economics is. You give people money at the bottom they pump it back into the system by buying things that keeps factories working and employers employed and businesses afloat. Then whatever those businesses pay taxes, whatever, then that goes to the government and then the government makes its money back. And then there's this nice little loop. Um, so obviously maybe for those of us who want to avoid a recession, we're going to consume for those of us 
who agree with Bertrand Russell, we aren't going to we aren't going to overconsume because it's unethical. Um, so have a think about that and reach out to me, please. I encourage you. Um, I find it very helpful and informative. Um, that sounded really robotic, but I'm being serious. I guess I'm just in a serious mood because I'm talking about philosophy. Um, okay, so now we move on to the fourth, the fourth dot point, which is slavery. And in my notebook, I have slavery hyphen Nietzsche. Um, and the reason I have Nietzsche there is because slavery, one of Nietzsche's, one of Nietzsche's uh, most infamous slash famous claims is the fact that society exists as a binary or kind of human psychology exists as a binary. There are slaves and masters. Um, and he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean slaves as in, uh, someone who is, he kind of, so when Nietzsche says slave, he means someone who is unquestioningly accepting the way society is. Um, and so through the Nietzschean lens, you could, through a Nietzschean lens, you could argue that a consumer, a rich consumer is a slave because they don't have a critical engagement with, maybe they've, maybe they have thought about the way society is structured and they've decided that the best thing for them is for them to consume. And then maybe Nietzsche would argue that they're a master, but if they are just someone who is born into a rich family, their parents aren't particularly thoughtful, um, Unfortunately, they aren't very thoughtful and they are, they have, they inherit this huge income and they just buy cars and houses and fly all over the world in private jets, whatever islands in Greece. Um, Nietzsche would argue that they are a slave because they aren't, they aren't actually reflecting on what their drives are and how, um, how their drives uh, interact with the world and kind of mm, personalizing um, their decision making by deciding to do things because that is what they feel is consistent with their character after they have reflected on their character, not just assuming that their character is, yeah, not just adopting the character that's been morphed or shaped for them by their parents. Um, so that's a kind of brief uh, discussion of the Nietzschean slave, the master, the Nietzschean master. Um, sorry. The Nietzschean master is the person who critically analyzes their drives and preferences and priorities and makes lifestyle decisions based on that. So um, I don't li like, I, I don't believe that that's a very good way of thinking about the world. Um, there's part, like, I like part of it. I like the kind of critical awareness of the self. I think that's very important, but, um, yeah. So I, I don't know. So when we think about, when we apply this to what Russell says, Russell's claim is that capitalism encourages slavery because people with money buy things that are produced by people who work in unfortunate conditions, um, and those people are in such unfortunate as part part of the unfortunate conditions of the people who are slaves is that 
they have to continue working in those jobs in order to support themselves and their family, families, family. Um, so I guess what, what Russell doesn't say is that what we need is some kind of, we obviously need a radical change to the way society is structured. Um, there are a number of approaches you can take. There's, I don't know, universal basic income, social welfare state, uh, land, land value tax, uh, uh, capital gains tax, uh, various different taxes or social welfare systems or ways of distributing money and wealth and services and privilege. Um, that's, that's not in this essay, so I'm not going to talk about that, but I imagine that that's what Russell was hinting at. He's kind of saying that society, (laughs) capitalist society can't, as it is structured, as it was structured then, and as it is structured now, 90 years later, isn't structured. And this shouldn't be new for you. This really shouldn't be new for you. It isn't structured in such a way that people are given enough freedom and people aren't under so much pressure that they can engage with their interests and hobbies and passions in a way that is active. So active rather than passive. So you're not so sapped of your energy that when you return from home, you just sit in front of the TV and and kind of mindlessly watch things. That's not what we want. Um, maybe it's what it feels like we want when we come home from work, but we shouldn't feel like that. Um, we really shouldn't. No, I, I think that's a real, I think that's a very sad thought that that often we are made to feel as though we, we are without energy. Um, and yeah, um, and I guess there's a difference. So I am someone who for a long time has struggled with depression and often my depression makes me feel like I am without energy, but that is very different from I, I classify that as being very different from being without energy because my work has demanded so much of me and from me. Um, and I think, I think that's a fair claim um, because one is, you know, psychological or kind of, you know, it's a deficient in my upbringing or some a deficiency in my upbringing or kind of some life trauma or something. And the other is something that is capable of being changed. Um, if money is directed in such a way that it is fairly and evenly distributed or something, one of those things, UBI, social welfare, I don't know, kind of a more socialist um, society, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure what Russell, what Russell suggests. It's not clear from this essay. So the whole slavery thing, um, I guess the main point is that uh, if we if we continue consuming uh, unethically and we consume things that we know are attached to companies who flout the well-being of their work, completely neglect the well-being of their workers, we are supporting uh, companies that are engaging in slavery. Um, and we can't have that. We cannot have 
the basic freedom of people taken away, the freedom to enjoy their life. Um, that is that is one of the most fundamental freedoms of the human experience. Um, if because I return to the quote that I read at the beginning, um, when you ask someone what brings them the greatest amount of pleasure, they're probably I don't know anyone who would say that it's their job. Um, I imagine most people would say their job deprives them of an incredible amount of pleasure and freedom by making them feel a certain way for an extended period of time, even after they have finished. And, you know, there is the existential dread of having to wake up early for work the next morning. It impacts the evening before. It impacts your appetite. You know, you have... You don't get along with your colleagues because everyone's miserable because they're all working in this place that they don't want to be at. Your boss is sleep deprived. They have a failed marriage. They take it out on the employees. They're oversharing. You know, there's just so much. And 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 you have to keep going back because you have to pay rent. You have to pay for groceries. You have to support your family. Um, yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's extremely... It's an extremely overwhelming combination of thoughts um to have um and and it's very upsetting um and i am this essay was difficult for me to read um because yeah uh i listened to a podcast about this essay and that's why i decided to make my own podcast about this essay the podcast was nothing like mine i'm not nothing like mine you know um i'm not plagiarizing their ideas or they had a very different take um but they kind of had this uh deeply uh it was, i don't know it just seemed like there were there were certain lessons um that this essay they read it as this kind of transactional they had they seemed so the podcast is called very bad wizards that's the one that i listened to it's kind of i don't know sometimes it's good sometimes the two guys that host it are um are pretty silly sometimes um, I haven't listened to many, I haven't listened. Yeah. Anyway, um, their reading of it was transactional. It felt transactional. They were kind of pulling these lessons out of it. Like they read it and they're like, oh, cool idea. And then they synth- synthesized the idea, but I didn't feel like there was much personal, emotional connection with the text. Um, and I was really moved by this text because it really resonated with how I think the world actually is. And he was writing, Bertrand Russell was writing 90 years ago. Um, and the world is still fucked. Um, and many, pe- many people say that. Many people criticize capitalism. Um, this is what my second episode is going to be about. Many people criticize capitalism, but they don't do anything. They don't actually do anything. Um, and I don't believe that I do enough. Um, this, this podcast is part of my giving back part of me trying to uh, expand, hopefully contribute to the expansion of people's horizons. Um, And, you know, please contribute to mine by criticizing my thoughts and engaging with me. So contact me as well. Okay. I'm only briefly going to address the final two things. So number five was automation. And this is, this isn't clearly hinted at. Um, This isn't because I don't imagine that Russell... I'm not sure that he would have foreseen, or I guess he kind of did, but maybe he wouldn't have had the language to describe 
the technological advancements that we've had now. So Andrew Yang, who's who had some interesting policies. So today, yeah, also Bernie pulled out of the Democrat candidacy race. Um, and yeah, I say that with a heavy heart. Um, yeah, another blow to progressive politics. Um, but Andrew Yang, one interesting thing that he thought about was the impact that automation is going to have on the economy. So I think there are 5 million truck drivers in America, uh, something around there. Um, if, if truck driving is automated, um, so we know that, so many people resent Elon Musk, but I guess one thing that, uh, a good thing that Tesla is doing is reducing the likelihood of people dying behind the wheel because automated cars are significantly less likely to crash. Um, and yeah, automated cars don't get tired. They don't get sleepy. They don't have personal problems. Um, they don't have things to distract them. Um, they run on sophisticated algorithms. They can be updated, whatever. Already, self-driving cars are much less, are much safer than, driverless cars are much safer than cars with drivers. And so I'm not opposed to driverless cars um, because I guess in some ways I'm utilitarian. Um, I would have been for seatbelts if I was born in a time where seatbelts weren't mainstream. Um, yeah, although interestingly in London, people don't wear helmets and it's not mandatory to wear helmets and that's wild. Um, yeah, as an, as an Australian, I'm used to wearing a helmet. Um, and I believe that is something that we should all do. We should take measures to protect our body because we are fragile beings. Um, yeah, that's also that's also something that I'm I'm constantly reminded of the fragility of our our bodies and our minds. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so automation. Um, so I guess idleness. We will we will have more idle time if things become automated. Um, and well, that's what Russell wants. Russell believes that idleness is going to be a consequence of things being automated. At least this is what he would believe. He would believe that auto, um, that idleness is going to be something which flows on from the automation of things. But he doesn't want people to still be having to work ridiculous hours to support themselves. Um, and so, yeah, like it's actually a very interesting question. What do you, if you have been a truck driver for... For, from the age of 20 to the age of 65, the age, yeah, 20 to 65. And then at the age of 65, your all trucks are automated and you're out of work. You, I mean, you don't have the kind of cognitive flexibility that you had when you were younger. And so it'd be very difficult to retrain, not impossible, but it'll be difficult to retrain, um, and learn a new kind of skill set. Um, yeah, even even having even being made redundant from your entire uh, discipline at the age of like forty or even thirty would be pretty catastrophic. Um, like if I 
I mean, I would feel deep. I don't even know if I'd be able to recover if like, if my podcast, for some reason, I was unable to make it anymore. Um, Yeah, if, if that was taken away from me and automated by something and being done better by something, a machine that that would be very scary um but that's kind of one one way we can think about what russell says but the other thing is that when things are being automated we need to think about how we can give we can maximize people's engagement with their idle time and this is where we move on to the final thing which is education um and i kind of regret speaking about this last i feel like i should have hinted at it earlier because maybe I wonder how many of you actually listen to the end. And I think this is one of the most important intuitions. Um, if you do listen to the end, send me a message. Send, And I do this thing sometimes just to make sure that people are actually listening. DM me on Instagram. Pick up your phone. Send me a message. Alex listens. Say, I'm still listening! Exclamation mark, And then I'll know what you mean. Um, or if you're on YouTube, whatever. Um, comment that. Comment that on YouTube. I'm still listening! Exclamation mark. Um, yeah, so education, uh, that's just, you know, so I can, you can, um, feed my insecurities and, and reassure me and make me feel as though everything's okay. Um, yeah, so education, uh, Russell thinks that the role of the academic world is, and, you know, primary, uh, secondary, tertiary education, the role of those things is to teach people how to think about their life in a way that allows them to maximally enjoy their free time. Um, and so one thing that I realized a few years ago is that people who work paycheck to paycheck and who work in incredibly physically demanding jobs don't have the freedom that I have to sit down at a chair in my bedroom for one hour and think about philosophy and these ethical questions free from physical exhaustion um, or mental exhaustion. Uh, That is an amazing privilege. Um, And I guess a lot of it, I, a lot of it comes down, if not all of it comes down to luck um, or, or chance. Um, I was born, I was just born into this family. Um, I was born into this part of Melbourne. Um, I was, uh, I went to the schools that I did. I didn't have any choice over that. Um, yeah, I guess the things that I did have a choice over were my, um, oh, some, some degree of choice, obviously circumstances inform my capacity to engage with things, but you know, I chose to be very studious towards the end of high school and that kind of allowed me to get into law school and then I kind of was super depressed whatever but you know I've I've made these decisions later in my adult life where I've been more autonomous which were totally informed by my upbringing and the privileges that I was given in my upbringing and now I'm able to sit here and kind of enjoy this rich cognitive what I feel like is a rich and rich cognitive experience and enriching, um, and nourishing and grounding. Um, but also upsetting because I realized that this is a privilege and this isn't something that's experienced by most people. I don't believe, um, because 
that, and that that isn't and I'm not being I'm not being cocky. I'm not insulting anyone. I just believe this is the reality of late capitalism in 2020. Privilege is isolated to a select few. I live in one of the richest cities in the world. Um, most of my friends comparatively come from incredibly wealthy families. Um, and this is something that for some reason is totally neglected um, and is hardly ever spoken about. Um, you know, there's all this check your privilege stuff, but um, yeah, I feel like money and the privilege associated with money is something that has been totally neglected. So that's what the second part of this podcast is going to be about. It's going to be about the ways in which idleness and the capacity to be still and the capacity to think is um, a real privilege. And and we need to we need to have we need to develop a discourse as there has been a development in identity politics around race and gender. There also needs to be a development around the discussion of financial privilege and economic power. Um, I study at the University of Melbourne. I've also studied at Monash University, King's, King's College London, and University College London. And those are some of the best universities in the world. Um, and that means, by virtue of them being some of the best universities in the world, that means they attract people who have had the capacity and had the circumstances that have supported engagement with academia. Um, and studying and studying is time and if the next meal is a question mark um you don't you don't really i don't yeah it doesn't seem like you'd have the kind of time that academia and study demands of you um yeah so that's what i'm going to talk about next in part two so if you enjoyed this episode um please leave me a review on apple podcasts uh, please actually do that though. Um, please get in contact with me um, and please support me on Patreon. Uh, yeah, so thanks for listening. I hope this was insightful and informative. Thanks. Bye.